0: Thank you for listening to our Truth in Life podcast. This season, we will survey the Bible's unfolding story of redemption. From Genesis to Revelation, every book points to Christ and edifies his church. For more information on our church, visit ChristTheWord.com. All right. Well, we are in our third week now of studying the Minor Prophets. So I just want to take kind of a minute to recap the first couple weeks. We'll do this each week. Because, kind of like I said at the outset, I would love for us to be able to look back at the end of this six-week portion and just be able to say, hey, here's, the, here's what this book is about, high level. So, first book we had was Obadiah. Do you remember who that prophecy was written to? Edomites, yes. Obadiah, Edom. Think Obadiah, Edom. And who were the Edomites? Descendant. Es- yes, descendants of Esau. Edom means red, and Esau was a... Red hairy dude. It sounded like. So, uh, why were they being punished by God? What was their offense? Does anybody remember? Failure to let Israel go through and provide for them though they were willing to pay for Yeah. So, and that was one instance. And we kind of looked at like even a a history of that type of action, right? Where they were like undermining the work of Israel, not uh, not helping them, not supporting them like a brother would support them. Aj. They essentially cheered for uh, Yeah, they cheered, yeah, exactly. They're like try, ransacking them when they're down, cheering. yeah, really just like being this not always the primary aggressor, but just someone who's always coming and trying to uh, add insult to injury. Um, so great. Uh, when, then what was the book of Jonah about? We talked about Jonah last week. Who is Jonah prophesying to? Nineveh, Nineveh. Yeah, we're familiar with that. Uh, I, I enjoyed studying Jonah because you, you know, we have this idea of him that we hear in Sunday school growing up, if you've grown up in church. Um, but you know, really, there's there's a lot bigger picture to the story. We see God's compassion. We see really what matters to God. We see Jonah being being kind of chastised by God for his lack of compassion. So this brings us to Micah. So uh, as we jump into Micah. Uh, Again, this is a book that there are lots of quotes taken through the rest of Scripture. For some of us, this might be the first time we've ever read it, Uh, and for others of us, we might be more familiar with it. Uh, In any case, as we get into today's lesson, really hoping to to unpack it and, and see how this applies to us today. Again, we'll follow the same outline that we've been following and that you'll kind of have throughout all the, uh, the truth in life this year. This historical setting, then going through the outline of the actual book, and then Christ and his church talking about the church today, how it applies to Jesus, and then finally what we take away from it as far as how it can affect our life. So with the historical setting, Micah is actually, the name Micah is kind of a shorter form of the name Micaiah, which is another famous prophet. It means who is like Jehovah. And this name is really well-suited for Micah. Jehovah is God. This is the, the Old Testament name of God, one of his many names, but uh, kind of an iteration of when Moses says, okay, what's your name? And God says, I am who I am. That uh, translates to Jehovah. So Micah, the reason I say this is a good name for Micah is Micah really has a high view of God's holiness and also of his compassion and his righteousness. So when you read this letter, or this prophecy rather, it really seems like the writings of a good pastor. Somebody who, there's genuine concern for the people, but there's also an even higher concern for God and God's name. And that's, you know, that's what we want our leaders to exhibit. We want them to be concerned for us and concerned for our souls, and, but more than anything, to be concerned that God's righteousness is upheld, that God is honored, as holy. And that's, that's really kind of what we see as we, as we read it. So Micah was from this town called Moresheth Gath. If you see that star there, it's outside Jerusalem. Small town, it sounds like. We don't know. It's a village. We don't know a ton of about it uh, as far as the village. Micah was a contemporary to Isaiah. So he prophesied during the same time period as Isaiah. And in the prophets, a lot of times we can kind of peg them as far as like where where they're at on the timeline by the kings that they're around. I'm gonna read the first verse of the book. It says, the word of the Lord, which came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Jerusalem and Samaria. So unlike some of the prophets we studied that are vague, like Obadiah, we don't exactly know for sure when he's prophesying. With Micah, we learn a lot. We learn where he's prophesying, or where he's from, who he's prophesying to, and when he's prophesying. So, first, I want to point out it says which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. So, Samaria and Jerusalem. If you can see this map here, do you see? Uh, we talked last week, you know, about the, the split between the northern and the southern kingdom. After Solomon's son Rehoboam came along, northern said, "Hey." We don't want anything to do with the house of David and that line of kings we're going to make our own kingdom so it's split and then can anybody see by the star what that the capital of the northern kingdom is samaria Samaria. and then the capital of the southern kingdom jerusalem so really when micah is saying he was prophesying to jerusalem and samaria what he's saying Based on on this synecdoche, which synecdoche is like if you have it's a literary tool where you say where you take a piece to refer to the whole. Like if you say, "Hey, nice wheels," and what you really mean is "nice car." If somebody gets a new car, I don't really know anybody who actually talks that way, but you get the picture. It's it's a piece that's referring to the whole. So that's what when he's saying, "I'm prophesying to Samaria and Jerusalem." What he means is, (laughs) I'm prophesying to Israel and Judah. So so I'm prophesying this prophecy. It's not to a foreign country like the last couple we looked at. This is a prophecy to the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom, to God's people. And that's really important to keep in mind as as we unpack it. And then who he's studying, or who he's prophesying during. So Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. These three kings, again, this is the same time period as Isaiah, who was one of the major prophets at that time? Jotham. Does anybody know if he was good or bad? Yeah. Jotham. Actually, Jotham good. seemed to be pretty good. He did what was right inside of the Lord. He did according to his father Uzziah. He left some of the high places, uh, which was, you know, places that they would sacrifice that were outside of Jerusalem. Uh, but overall, Jotham seemed pretty committed to the Lord. Ahaz. Bad. Yes, Ahaz was really wicked. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, even made his sons to pass through the fire. That's human sacrifice. I mean, he slaughtered his own children for sacrificing to these, these false gods. Really wicked dude. And then Hezekiah, two thumbs up here. It says in Kings that he, after him, there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor among those who were before him. For he clung to the Lord and did not depart from him. So Hezekiah was very committed to the Lord. So that's the time period that he's uh, preaching to, but something that's important to understand, there was a lot of corruption in the land. I'm just gonna read a um, a few excerpts or bring up a few points. So this corruption between Israel and Judah, remember Israel didn't have any good kings. The Northern Kingdom, they were all bad kings. Uh, So, and even in Judah, it was kind of hit and miss. So he says they're violating their covenant with the Lord. Though she walked through the rituals of religion, so just going through the motions, he says the leaders are taking away the property by violence. So kind of force it, if you think even of Jezebel and Ahab, where he takes uh, the land, the vineyard of Naboth by violence, that's happening people are seizing property. The leaders are seizing property. Prophets and priests are corrupt, it says. Justice is being perverted by the leaders. It says witchcraft and paganism are rife throughout the land. It says that in chapter 5. It says false weights were frequently being used in trade. So basically people were cheating. You know, the merchants were using false weights to overcharge people. Uh, and family relationships have been broken down with these devastating consequences. The overall, the audience he's preaching to is this very morally bankrupt people, much like today. We can look around and say a lot of the same things about the country that we live in. You know, Unfortunately, we can see the corruption and the, the paganism and all these things around us. So we can relate to this, right? This is 3000 years ago, a long time ago, but a lot of these messages we can take and apply to ourselves today. Well, let's go ahead and get into the text so this is so far the longest book that we've looked at it's only seven chapters though so by in the grand scheme of most of the old testament it's still a pretty short book uh, but we're gonna we're gonna kind of go through and talk through the outline overall this is what kind of the flow of the book looks like there's judgment threatened and then that's against israel and judah And then it kind of boils it down and and calls out the leaders specifically. And then after that, there's my favorite part of the chapter is this just talking about this peace that the Messiah is going to bring, lots of messianic prophecy. So the Messiah, that's Jesus. The Messiah is this promised hope of the people that's been, again, this theme through the very beginning of scripture to the Israelites. Promising, hey, someone's going to come and deliver you. Someone's going to come and deliver you. Lots of messianic prophecy that we f- see fulfilled in Jesus in, in Micah, and then finally this uh, kind of this climax of <laughs> God's punishment, but also His incredible mercy for His people. So we'll have some snippets here, and I will just ask for some volunteers for a few of these verses. Does anybody want to nice and loud read? This is from that first section. This is from. The initial pronouncement that, hey, there's going to be judgment. Does anyone want to read this this verse? Keith? Hear, O oh people, all of you. Listen, O oh earth, and all it contains. And let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from His holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming forth from His place. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. The mountains will melt under Him the valleys will be split like wax before the fire like water poured down a steep place all of this for the rebellion of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel great thank you so this is this is kind of a scary verse right the mountains melting like wax God is, is saying that God is coming and God is coming to judge and then why that last line you read, for the rebellion, the rebellion of the people. There's another verse in this initial section, though, that it would be, I would be remiss if I did not talk about this verse. I'll read it. Just listen to this idea of the remnant. I will surely assemble all of you, Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like a sheep in the fold, like a flock in the midst of its pasture. They will be noisy with men. It's going to be a lot of people in, the, in this fold, it says. So the king goes on before them, the Lord at their head. So this is the first snippet that we get, not in all of scripture, but just in, in this particular course, that uh, you know this section of Minor Prophets, of this idea of a remnant. This is a pervasive theme, just like the promised Messiah is a pervasive theme. This idea of a remnant is something that we see promised over and over throughout the Old Testament, and then we see it play out. So what this means, I guess, what's a remnant? Is that just kind of gen- high level, not even in this context? Leftover. If the- leftover, <laughs> yeah, thank you. It's a great way of putting it. So what God is saying is I'm gonna come and punish Judah and Israel. I'm gonna carry them away, they're gonna be this judgment, and they're going to be almost destroyed. You see this in different themes where, you know, like I, in other places, he says, I'm going to come chop down this tree and just leave the stump. There's a little bit of leftovers after his punishment. But then he takes that, that leftover, that tiny group that was not destroyed, and he causes that remnant to grow and to flourish into something far more glorious, and powerful, and beautiful than the original part ever was. So this is you know a snippet of that that we see here. It's much more prominent later in Micah actually, and, and you read Isaiah, and it talks about the remnant, and you read the other books that we're gonna be studying later in this class, and it talks about the remnant. It's just this great theme. As we look at the Old Testament, one of the things that's again helpful about the survey is we see themes like this unfold. So it's this great theme that we can see unfolding. God is promising this is gonna happen. He's gonna be He's promising there's gonna be a punishment and they're gonna be almost destroyed. He's gonna take that little remnant left over about and cause it to flourish. So the next section moving on that we see boils it down a little more. Uh, this, the first couple chapters are really addressing Israel and Judah as a whole. Chapter three turns and focuses on the leaders of the land. Does someone wanna read this section here? I got it. Thanks. Here, now, heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, it is not for you to know, yeah, is it not for you to know justice? You who hate good and love evil, who tear off their skin from them and their flesh from their bones, who eat the flesh of my people strip off their skin from them break their bones and chop them up as for the pot and as meat in a kettle thank you you know this verse is scary or should be scary for a lot of us because we're leaders now our flock might not look like the flock of these these people here but if we're a father or a mother we're a leader if we're a husband we're a leader if we lead in youth group we're a leader there is this expectation that we see in scripture it says in in james not many of you should be teachers because you know that teachers will incur a more strict judgment there's this higher expectation of the people who are leading god's flock god's people so in this chapter, it kind of calls out a few different groups. It talks about the prophets. It says, the prophets only care about their belly. The prophets divine for money. Yet they lead on the Lord, saying, Is not the Lord in our midst? Calamity will not come upon us. So these prophets, who should be saying the truth of the Lord, they're being bought off. It says they, you says, know, hey, here's a nice lamb to eat. Give me a prophecy I want to hear. And the priests. It says, the priests instruct for a price, again, there's this corruption. They're telling the people, you know, they're being paid off to say the different messages, And then finally, against the rulers or the head. That's who, the, you know, this is to, Is it not for you to know justice? These people should be the ones upholding justice, but in fact, they're the ones who are perverting justice, who are taking advantage, stripping the skin from them. I mean, they're destroying the people they're supposed to protect. So it's interesting because we see kind of these three different offices, the the prophets are called out, the priests are called out, the civil magistrate. And it reminds us, if you're, if you're familiar with Jesus' offices of the prophet, priest, and king, that he fulfills. Jesus is the perfect prophet. He's the perfect priest. And he's the perfect king. So, you know, it's just kind of an interesting parallel that the people that Micah is prophesying to have failed in all these areas that Jesus is then gonna come and, and fulfill and make right alright now we kind of turn to the the next section on this Messiah uh, I've got some more verses here than the other sections really because I, I lo- it's my favorite part of the book like I mentioned earlier I love seeing the scriptures talk about Jesus a lot of times people will think okay the Old Testament we don't, we don't need that it's, it doesn't apply to us it's written for another people in another day no, it's, it's all this cohesive picture of God's word and having time and time again, having these specific things it talks about in the Old Testament that were fulfilled in Jesus. We see that even a book like this, a random Old Testament book, is talking about the gospel and what happens. All right, someone want to read this nice and loud? Thanks. And it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and the peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, into the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us about his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. Thank you. The amazing thing about this verse too, and I don't have it up here, but just before this verse, what it says, so basically this verse is saying, in the end, the mountain of the Lord is going to be established. It's going to be the chief mountain. But just before this, it says that Zion, which is the mountain of the Lord, will be plowed as a field, and Jerusalem will be a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the temple will become the high places of a forest. In other words, just before this verse, he's saying, I'm going to come and I'm going to destroy Jerusalem. I'm going to destroy the mountain of the Lord. It's going to be ruined. This mountain of the Lord is going to be ruined and it's just going to be overgrown and become a forest. But then, that's not the end. Then, even though there's this ruin, it looks full and complete, God is going to take it and turn it into this glorious kingdom it's the same picture as the remnant right there's this destruction punishment it seems bleak it seems like man how could god's kingdom work about and then whew, god turns it into this big glorious thing um you know when we talk about the mountain of god that that's really talking about god's kingdom or mount zion which is the mountain of god you might hear these these different words and think okay you know, sometimes we'll hear words thrown around and not really see how they all go together. So Mount Zion is the actual mountain in Jerusalem that the temple was built on. So there's Mount Zion, that's kind of used interchangeably with the mountain of God and the mountain of God represents God's kingdom. So, you know, really what, when this is saying the mountain of God, it's more than just talking about, oh, there's this one hill in Jerusalem that's gonna be a big hill one day. No, this is, it's a picture. It's a picture saying that God's kingdom is going to be the chief kingdom. It's going to be ruling over all things. All right. Does anybody want to read this first? AJ, go ahead. And he will judge between many peoples and render decisions for mighty distant nations. Then they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they train for war. Okay. So this is well what is this prophecy proclaiming? What's the idea with hammering your swords into the ploughshares? There's gonna be an end to evil conflict man for Yeah. Yeah. What AJ said if you couldn't hear him was there's gonna be this this end to war essentially, right? End to conflict people won't need swords anymore they're not going to need them they're going to come and instead of needing swords they're going to use them to plow their field Uh, they won't have that fear this is the peace that comes with jesus that we have in many ways in our lives now we have great peace in christ but really will fully come in heaven one day when there will literally be no more death no more war this verse is actually Lifted. Well, I don't want to say lifted. Remember Isaiah and Micah were contemporaries. Isaiah has almost word for word the same prophecy. So maybe they knew each other. Maybe God inspired both of them separately. Maybe, you know, we don't really know. Maybe Isaiah had heard Micah prophesy this and put it in his book. Um, But it, it is, you know, just this beautiful picture of, okay, we're going to have peace one day. We're not going to need swords. All right. Volunteer for this verse. Micah? In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather the outcasts, even those whom I have afflicted. I will make the lame a remnant and run into the outcasts a strong nation, And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on and forever. Nice. Thank you. <laughs> nice. I don't think I'd be able to read it from that far back. My, my eyes aren't that great so nice job um yeah we see again what's the word here that we were talking about earlier remnant i will make the lame a remnant and the outcast a strong nation so god is going to take the lame and the outcast the ones that are powerless the ones that are weak the ones that are messed up you know the the ones that are crippled and take those people and turn them into his glorious kingdom. Jesus talks about this, right? Like the wedding feast, hey, go, gra- go gather the lame and the outcast. He takes the weak of the world and turns them glorious. This is us, we're weak, we're, we have nothing. We're not, we're not even part of God's uh, you know, chosen Hebrew nation, but God took us through the work of Christ and has caused us to be part of this strong nation. All right. A few more. I'll, I'll read this one here. See if, if you th- as I read this, see if you can think of where this might have been fulfilled by, in Jesus. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you will go forth one to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Therefore he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has born a child. Then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel, and he will arise and shepherd his flock And the strength of the Lord. This one will be our peace. Where do we see this being a prophecy about Jesus? His birth. Yeah. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And even in Herod's day, they understood that this prophecy meant that this is where the Messiah is going to be born. It's interesting, you know, Bethlehem, too little to be among the clans of Judah. It was this little town. I think we're used to, you know, now in our democratic republic, you can get somebody who comes to power from any city, right? But like back then, like, Jerusalem was where the kings came from. That was the house of David. They lived in Jerusalem. It was the, the major city. So this, this small town of Bethlehem is going to be where Jesus comes from. And then more remnant prophecies. The remnant of Jacob will be among the nations, among many peoples, like a lion among the beasts, like a young lion among flocks of sheep. All right. So then we see at the end, kind of this resolution so remember earlier in the book it's talking about uh, Judah you know there's going to be this coming judgment you guys have been faithless the leaders have been faithless and then he's promising okay there's going to be Messiah one day but then at, at the end the last couple books there's essentially kind of this punishment what's going to happen he has told you oh man what is good and what does the lord require of you but to do justice love kindness and walk humbly with your god this is a, a verse a famous for i remember in youth group we had a, a song based on this so i i remember this song from when i was a little kid but it's it's this great picture really though what it's saying is like you've neglected if you could sum up the sin of the people and why there's this issue right now this is exactly what the Israelites have failed to do. They haven't loved justice. They haven't loved kindness. They have not walked humbly with their God. AJ. <laughs> what was the song? He has shown thee, and then an echo He has shown thee, oh Amen, what is good and what the Lord requires of me. Do you remember that? Do you remember that, Micah? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Oh, yeah, maybe I'll bring my guitar one week and we can sing it. (laughs) Um, Okay. This is the very end. Who is a God who, like you, pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? This is where we see the mercy of God triumphing. You see the doom and gloom, you might call it. You see the prophecies of destruction. You see the sin. But in the end, what triumphs for God's people is his mercy. Listen to this. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. This is us. This is a great, I mean, think about the comfort of this verse. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. All the sins that we, you know, we just heard Chapters about the sins, the injustice, all the ways that they failed God. All of it's being cast into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob, and unchanging love to Abraham, which he swore to our fathers from the days of old. So this is the glory that we have as followers of Christ. Our sin is thrown into the depths of the ocean. Oh, it does mean who's like Jehovah, doesn't it? Yeah, I didn't think about that. Who is like Jehovah? Yeah, it could be kind of a play on his own name for the who's a God like you. Yeah. All right. So with Christ and his church, you know, the next section that we'll talk about, seeing how it applies to Jesus, with the Messianic prophecy, we really, I think we kind of dove into that already as we looked at the the prophecies. The next thing that I want to bring up, though, Is this concept of what we might call already not yet? So you might be thinking, well, this is all prophecy for the Israelites three thousand years ago. How does it apply to us? It's you know a verse like chapter four one. It says, now it shall come to pass in the latter days. So what are the latter days? What what part of this book has already been fulfilled? What part still needs to be fulfilled? So it's interesting. We see with micah we see parts of it have already been fulfilled he prophesies a captivity in babylon well we know that happened he prophesies about christ well we know that happened we know jesus came just like he said he would but then he has all this other stuff talking about uh you know this the mountain of god being glorious over all things and this remnant being fully triumphant and this you know establishing this new Heavens, new earth. So this idea that we call already not yet helps us to understand biblical prophecy. And basically what it means is often when we read prophecies, we need to understand that some of it, we are in this in-between time as a church where we have already realized many of the prophecies and the blessings of God, but there is more to come. We've realized it to a degree, but not fully. I think a way that we can even think of this, like think about your own sin. If you have faith in Jesus, on the one hand, you don't have sin. Jesus, his blood covered your sin. God looks at you, you are fully justified. You have no sin in God's eyes. <laughs> but, so that's already done. That work is already done with our being forgiven. But on the other hand, we all know that we sin as we go through our, our lives. We are not yet fully free of sin. We are at this in-between time. So, that, you know, when we think of like the promises of God, one, that gives us hope because we've already received a lot of the peace. Like the, you know, the prophecy about the, the plowshares, you know, the swords being hammered into the plows. Like we already have peace in Christ. If we believe in Christ here and now, we can rest and not have to feel like we're striving with God anymore. But, (laughs) again, so we already have part of it, but then not yet. We don't have that fully realized. There's going to be a day coming when there's perfect peace that's over all, you know, all the land where God has fully established his kingdom. So I think that, you know, this applies to Micah, but it's something that you can take that concept and apply it to lots of other prophecies in Scripture too. Um, you know, God gathering the outcasts, so that we looked at it a minute ago. God has already done that. Like I said, this church, there's there's outcasts. There's us who like we have nothing. We're weak. We're, you know, the the weirdos. Like God has already gathered them and but then there's still the prophecy that they will be triumphant over everything. So I think that's something that, as we think in this book, in the Old Testament, just understanding that that we are in the middle of God's work still. And we have great things that have already happened, but there's more that's gonna be be even better to come. And then finally, this idea of God's church triumphing (laughs) <laughs> That's what we see, even in what we've read, and there's other parts of Micah that I didn't read, uh, like the chief of the mountains being established, or the, the mount of God being established as the chief of mountains. God's church one day will be triumphant over all its enemies. I think, you know, the Jews look to Jesus as a political savior. They thought that Jesus was going to just be this political victory who came in and and uh, you know wiped out the Romans basically. And that's you look at a prophecy like that, and that's not an unfounded thing, right? Like <laughs> these are there's prophecies about Jesus coming in as this warrior king, and we just we understand now that it's even much bigger than they that they understood. He's going to defeat death. All right, so that's. That, you know, with, with Micah, hopefully, we see, hopefully, the impression you've gotten at least that there's a lot about Jesus and a lot about what's happening right now and what's going to happen in the future with the church. So, what's this mean for us today? So, first, this heart of religion. I'm going to pull up this, uh, the verse again that we already, uh, I don't have it here. The verse that we read with Micah 6.8, he has shown the O man what is good and what the Lord requires of me. What we should say, <laughs> and what we should take away from this is God is giving us a very boiled down, clear picture of what he requires from us. I'm going to flip back and find it. Here. He has told us what's good. The verses preceding this talk about, hey, I don't delight. He says, do I delight in thousands of sacrifices of bulls? This whole sacrificial system, which he did require. And he set out in the law of Moses, even in that, what he wanted was more than just a bunch of sacrifices of bulls. What he wanted was the heart of the people. So this idea of doing justice, loving kindness and walking humbly with God, So, loving-kindness, this is something that should be palpable. People should look at us and be like, man, they're kind. This is somebody who's loving. It's with your siblings. It's with the people around you. Like, we need to be, uh, I I think, something I've been working on with, with our own children because our children aren't kind to each other. And what I want them to understand Through the teaching isn't just like, oh, okay, this is not a big deal. No, being kind and loving each other is something that God is central to what he wants from his people. Doing justice, you know, not giving preference to to others, not looking through, you know, a, a lens of, oh, what can I get out of somebody? What can I get out of a situation? We're not in the position of a civil magistrate where we're actually, you know, executing justice and throwing people in prison or whatever like we're not that's not what justice looks like but we can certainly act with justice in the way that we treat people and walking humbly with God there's two things in here you know the walking idea when you're walking with somebody somebody you are a, you know in step with them you're going about your day with them like hey let's walk down to the store together okay you're together So when we walk with God, there's this idea that like, that we should be fellowshipping with him. We should be praying with him. That's why we read and pray. It's because we want to walk with God. We need to spend time with him. Know his word. And then do it humbly. Not having our own, uh, (laughs) our own appearance be what's most important to us. All right, next, we kind of hit on it earlier when we talked about the passage. We should take this book as a warning to us as leaders. Uh, The more severe judgment is given to the false teachers. So for us today, as we lead, whether we're leading in the workplace, leading in the home, leading our own children, leading others at church, we need to be, uh, okay, there's a, in Ezekiel, I know I'm bringing up a book outside of Micah, that's fine though, it's this, this all scripture. In Ezekiel, there's this great passage about shepherds, I think it's Ezekiel 34, and it talks about uh, God is chastising the leaders for not being good shepherds. There's this picture of like a, a shepherd is a good leader. There's this analogy, which is a great analogy, but a good shepherd knows his sheep. He knows their voice, they know his voice. So being a leader means communicating. This central, you know, if, if you're a husband, you need to be knowing your wife. How do you know your wife? It's not by you getting home from work and hanging out on, you know, scrolling your phone. It's by talking with them. We need to know our children. That's by talking with them, digging in, not just say, oh, how was your day? Good, okay, good. Seeing, like, what they're struggling with and taking the time to get to know them. These are the types of things that, that a leader does. And most importantly, leading them, pointing them to follow God. You know, that's the job of the leader. Is, you know, and that's the punishment that they were getting is because they were leading people away from God and not to God. In our own lives... We need to be living in a way that's following God. And when we are with others, pointing them to do the same thing. And then finally, this last application. God casts our sins into the deepest ocean. I'm going to read it again. He will again... uh, Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity? and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession. As Christians, we have guilt. We have sin. We have disobeyed God. There are despicable things that every single one of us has done, and we have that guilt on us. What we see here is God doesn't just pretend like it never happened, right? He's acknowledging That there is this rebellious act of the remnant of his possession. There is this real sin that needed to be dealt with. But then let's keep going. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. As a Christian, when we are feeling the weight of our own guilt, this is the weight of our own pride, lust, selfishness, anger. Like we know that we're sinners and it can be discouraging. But to remember that God has taken those sins and thrown them into the sea. If something's in the depth of the sea, you don't know where it is. I mean, remember when they lost the submarine and you know it's in the depth? They have no idea where it is. It can't be found. Our sins, instead of Judging them, or judge, using them to judge us. What God is doing when we are followers of Christ is he says, okay, you have this wicked sin, but I love you. And I am not going to hold that against you. And I'm going to take that sin and guilt of yours, and this is through the work of Jesus. I'm going to cast that away and put it behind us And what a great comfort. I mean, if there's anything like living, being able to live in the hope and the joy that God did this for us, that we don't need to keep trying to like do all these little things to be perfect, to earn God's favor, that we can just rest. You know, Christianity is not about trying to do all these little things to get right with God, to make it better. That's not going to happen. Christianity is about knowing that God took our sin and threw it away and Jesus paid the price for it and now we can live in this freedom where we don't have to you know be constrained by our own guilt and the sins of our past and we can have comfort that wow all these promises of God apply to me wow you know i can be i can have this peace i'm going to be part of God's people in heaven and that you know that's just the best news that's the gospel right that's the best news we could ever get and you know what a great god we have that is. It's not for our own good, right? It's not because we're special. It's because his loving kindness, unwavering love toward us. All right, let's pray. Thank you for listening to Truth and Life. If you enjoyed the series, please subscribe. And remember from Genesis to Revelation, every book is truth to live by.